joining us uh, for our Children's States of Emergency Conference and joining us for our closing keynote. Uh, I always uh, feel like days like today uh, are sort of a paradise, really. But paradise in the rigorous way Tony Morrison talks about it. But it's a place of joy and connection and community. But it is also this place that reminds us that there's all this work that still needs to be done. Uh, so that's where I feel today has been like. And, you know, I just thought before we get to our close, we just could review a little bit what we've talked about today. And some of the major themes, I asked earlier this morning, building on Kimberly Crenshaw's wonderful opening keynote, what does it mean to think about gender and states of emergency uh, through an intersectional lens? And it means about, it means that we have to think about the importance of identity categories and determining what counts as a crisis or disaster. Um, an intersectional lens can change the vocabulary we use. People who engage in progressive politics must interrogate conceptual foundations of our work, foundations tied towards like citizenship, belonging, and family. Uh, and these words are transformed in translation and transform the traditional Western theoretical frameworks that we sometimes use. Uh, another theme that I thought was really fabulous today is the idea of a kind of pistol poetics. Um, and so we, we, so we must be attentive uh, to masculinity and state discourse. And I think there's a way that patriarchy seems sort of old school and contemporary in some of this framework, but sometimes no other word will do. Uh, and I think it came up a lot today, uh, and it, uh, it as did Arizona, uh, which is a sort of site of our regulatory nightmares, uh, our presence and our futures. Um, you know, the fact that some state legislatures would like to make the cult the official state weapon is only one sign of the romance of U.S. masculinity that makes death, destruction, and disavowal the foundation of a fanciful technicolor history and present. Uh, fantasies that erase the histories of violence against women and people of color and shore up uh, white citizenship models. Arizona has also illustrated discourse of uh, a politics of scarcity. Uh, as Haley talked about today, in which white anxiety about resources and the land of excess results in the demonization of immigrants, particularly uh, immigrant wombs. Um, that's another theme, the womb, today. Uh, wombs are very important in constructing states of emergency. Uh, white Christian women don't fill their wombs enough. Okay. Immigrant women fill their wombs too much. Oh, oh. Uh, while the U.S. depends upon the productive labor of brown women, their reproductive labor uh, is a source of anxiety. So we struggle today uh, with how we can contest seemingly the, the unassailable logic of things like the, the claims that the quiverful men will make. That was me from my vocabulary. Quiverful. <laughs> Who mourn the fact that smart people use birth control. <laughs> we hope so. Uh, and we've also explored um, the expansive discourse of risk to fetuses and children. And finally, we focus on the politics of invisibility and visibility, of danger, of asylum seekers, uh, pathology and violence, um, even as we question the means we use as scholars to make these issues visible. Uh, so it's been an expansive and glorious conversation today. Uh, and I can't really think of anyone who I would prefer to hear closes out uh, than Cynthia Enloe and, and Wendy Smooth is going to introduce her and tell us why. 
Uh, so I thank you for joining us for this final conversation, and please join us afterwards in, in Ballroom B across the hall for our wonderful reception. There's lots of food and a bar. Uh, so I hope to see you. So thank you. to introduce Cynthia Enlow, which I don't really, it's like introduce Cynthia Enlow. What kind of job is that, right? Um, it's more of a reminder, and I wanted to remind us of some fun things. But one of the ways in which I first engaged with Cynthia Enlow was in a, in a women's studies course, but it was in this um, interestingly amazing, crazy space that had gotten produced over a quarter, in which we ended up in these kinds of incredible campouts between the humanities scholars and the social scientists. And the social scientists, I'm trained as a social scientist, we were taking it on the chin at every turn. <laughs> our numbers, our positivism, our critique or failures to critique or fully engage with gender in the categories of life that matter. And every week it was the same embattled march through this course. And you know, when you get in a course and it gets to that space, then it's just hard to move anyone into these kinds of common spaces until we reached Cynthia's work on the syllabus. And at one point, I was kind of at this moment of saying, and you realize she's a political scientist. <laughs> into this kind of space of community of thinking about new ways to think about language and power. And so that kind of like personal vendetta had to be suppressed in the nature of coming to greater, more fulfilled feminist analysis. So you helped us to make it to that point. And some of the people, some of the people in that course, I still call some of my dearest friends. <laughs> so as I said, it's like an introduction of Cynthia in love who really does that, right? Why, how do we do that? So one of the things that I wanted to do is to kind of draw on not just this, this amazing career in terms of her writings and in terms of her work, but I wanted to kind of share with you what her peers and her students think of her and have said about her in terms of affirming the amazing force she has been in terms of the intellectual project of feminism, globalization, militarization, and helping us, as the title of one of her books says, to be the curious feminist. That's a different kind of feminist, right? A higher calling in order. But just as a formality, she's a professor, of, a research professor of international development and social change in women's and gender studies at Clark University. Her impressive career spans many Fulbrights, Malaysia, and Guyana, guest professorships in Japan, Britain, Canada, lecturing and speaking Norway, Germany, Korea. She's written 12 books. Some of my personal favorites I will add out of the list include Bananas, Beaches, and Bases. And we can cheer when you like your, your <laughs> shout out, your favorite one comes up. <laughs> Bases, making feminist sense of international <laughs> politics. Maneuvers, the international politics of militarizing women's lives. And globalization <laughs> and militarism, feminists make the link. The curious feminists. <laughs> Searching for women in a new 
age of empire. And of course, her newest work, Nemo's War, Emma's War, Making Feminist Sense of the Iraq War. That was published in 2010 and is now working on a project with a feminist geographer in terms of putting together a critical atlas of the US. So those are some of the things that get translated all over the world. But what Cynthia, I think, is most known for is the ways in which she engages her audiences and infects them. We talked about Mexican bugs versus American bugs. <laughs> I'd say today we're going to be infected with that revolutionary change bug. <laughs> In her highly accessible manner, she not only has a way of explaining complex, complicated, difficult topics from militarization, sex-based war crimes, imperialism, imbalances, and global trade, and the reach of capitalist markets, she also has a way of doing this by making you comfortable with understanding that at the core of all of those conversations are conversations about power. And not only are there conversations about power, but they're conversations in terms of how we're all implicated in the participation of those systems and their success. And she also challenges us to not only think about change, but to believe that we are actually a part of the process of change. And her colleagues and her students have recognized this in her work. With her smart, quick wit, and a talent for deeply engaged listening. And I think that's something that we all, we all can um, strive to do. But there's some who are truly gifted and talented in terms of how they pull that off. And I think that her students at Clark rightly um, selected her as the outstanding teacher at Clark, not once, not twice, but three times, and named her university senior faculty fellow for excellence in teaching and scholarship. Her colleagues have said that she's an intellectual force, um, not only in her uh, location, however you could situate her in a discipline, she transcends it all, but they've situated or talked about her work as an intellectual um, force in terms of giving her a series of awards that I think really speak to the essence of Cynthia Enloe's work. One being just last year, she was awarded the Howard Zinn Lifetime Achievement in Peace Studies Award by the Peace and Justice Studies Association. In 2009, the editors of the International Feminist Journal of Politics created the Enloe Award. <laughs> which is awarded annually to recognize and to publish, so that material consequences piece is always present in her life, um, the manuscripts of an exceptional, of an exceptional quality, um, a manuscript of exceptional quality submitted by an emerging scholar. So that dedication to mentoring the next generation is always there. The International Studies Association stepped up and awarded her the Women's Caucus for International Studies of the International Studies Association, the Susan B. Northcutt Award. And let me tell you what that award honors. A person who actively works toward recruiting and advancing women and other minorities in the profession and whose spirit is inclusive, generous, and conscientious. Finally, she's also received the Susan Strange Award from the ISA, and this is the President's Award given every year to a person whose singular intellect, assertiveness, and insight 
most challenge conventional wisdom and organizational complacency in the international studies community during the previous year. And I say it's been a lifetime career of doing that um, for Cynthia Emma. Please do join me as we prepare to be engaged and challenged to think anew as we close out a wonderful day of conversation and we hear from an engaged listener. How am I going to follow that? I mean, let's just go home. Let's go drink. I mean, truly. First Rebecca, then Wendy. I mean, you know, that's not fair. Um, this, has been a, this has been a fabulous uh, conversation, a fabulous um, gathering. And can we just have a round of applause for Jill and for Rebecca and for Wendy and for all the uh, folks that have worked so hard. And Jenny, absolutely. Because here's, here's the thing that happens. When you organize things, you never tell anyone else how much work it is because you know nobody else will ever organize anything. <laughs> so don't look to them for actually telling you all the work they did because they will never tell you because they want you to organize the next thing. Um, and so I just want to appreciate how much, how much work it takes to get all of us in the same room at the same time. Um, I thought a lot about the, the conference theme when it was presented um, to me uh, six months ago, and that's when you have to come up with a title. Right? Then you get in the midst of things, and of course there's a real conversation going on, and you know it's not quite the same. So I'll, let me tell you, I'll do two parts. Let, let me tell you what I first thought I wanted to talk about, then I'll tell you what you've all made me think about. Um, the first is um, about the use of the idea of chaos. And I'm, and I'm not talking as a physicist, I'm not talking as a post-mod lit crit person who uses the physics notions of chaos, forget all that. I'm talking about actually how people in ordinary speech and thought and how the media, who are also ordinary people who have access to more resources than we do, think about chaos and its fearfulness and what it looks like and what the alternative is. And I've been particularly struck by the anxiety that has been provoked by the uh, uprisings in uh, the Middle East um, and further and beyond um, uh, in the last uh, three or four months, and particularly about Egypt. Um, because as you know, um, I'm not an Egyptian specialist, um, I'm not alas, lack an Arabic speaker. But you all know, um, I'm sure, from your own uh, viewing of uh, what's been happening in Egypt, that um, for the first time, a lot of Americans um, who should have known better, that's all of us, um, are aware of how much um, uh, support the US government, in our name, in the name of our security, has been giving to the Mubarak regime. Um, particularly in the form of military aid. Uh, and for the first time, that has become semi-visible uh, with pie charts and all kinds of things that appear in uh, newspapers and on television. Um, and the presumption has been that 
upholding the Mubarak version of stability uh, would, in fact, enhance the, the security of um, Americans. Um, the other presumption was it would also um, enhance the security of people living in Israel. Um, it was a double presumption, and of course it wasn't including all uh, people living in Israel, but particularly people um, in Israel who support the current um, system in Israel. But it was, it was also supposed to be um, in gaining our security. Um, but most of us didn't think to actually look <coughs> below the surface and look at what the Mubarak regime's version of a stable Egypt was for women or for men of different classes and different ethnicities. Egypt is not a mono-ethnic um, society. Um, and we'll come back to that in just uh, a minute as far as what the new constitution looks like, which makes that very clear. Um, and so that the lives lived by Egyptians um, was not actually of much curiosity. And um, as Wendy said, I'm very interested in curiosity because I'm very aware of all the things I'm not curious about. Um, and I realize, for instance, that I have had, I do know nothing, I mean really nothing, about the lives of women in Libya. I really, I ju it's just a thorough embarrassment. I really don't know anything about <coughs> lives of women lived in Libya or their relationships to men. I have been, um, thanks to Margot Bodron and to Miriam Cook and to some of the other wonderful scholars of the um, of Middle Eastern women and Middle Eastern women's literature and history, I am more curious about, not really knowledgeable about, but curious about um, Egyptian women's organizing. Um, and so when you now hear Egyptian women who are activists, who have been part of the April 4th movement, which was a key movement within the larger movement that brought down Mubarak, not necessarily the Mubarak regime, but Mubarak, not to be confused, um, that I, you, when you hear Egyptian women now worry, as they are, and worrying out loud um, about, in fact, what is happening since um, the military has taken full control of the state, um, what you will hear some of them hearken to is, oh my God, is this going to be 1922 again? That is, is this going to be at a time when Egyptian women were so crucial, uh, almost physically in the forefront of some of the major rallies in Cairo that uh, forced the British to give up not all, but a good proportion of their control over the Egyptian political system in 1922 as a result of anti-colonial rallies in 1919. When women were there, where were they after the British reluctantly conceded uh, at least their um, control of domestic politics, not of foreign policy, not of defense politics, but of domestic politics? Then what happened to women who were in the forefront, who were considered uh, serious and essential, essential allies in, of men in the nationalist um, movement against British rule. Then what happened? And that's 1922. And there is in um, uh, the Egyptian women's writings of that time, 
they actually described what happens when, in fact, the men get together, the nationalist men, to write the first post, semi-post-colonial constitution. And what happens is they write in a system that is male-only voting and male-only parliament. And that history is known. Egyptian feminists know that history, partly because the, the feminists of that era wrote their own autobiographies, um, and a lot of that work um, has um, uh, been shared and it's known. And so the question is, are we about to hit 1922 again? Is this what happens in revolutions? That is, that there are two revolutions going on here. There's a revolution about women's um, capacity to have an influence in civic life, uh, formal civic life, as well as informal civic life. And the second is, will the departure of Mubarak and his sons actually equal a change in regime? And if it's a real change in regime, how deeply analyzed will the regime be, i.e., its patriarchal quality as well as its militarized and highly elitist quality? So in that sense, if you think about chaos, and this is why when Jill first, Jill and Rebecca first asked me to think of a title, um, I was really looking at how both the American national security elite and the um, American media, um, who aren't necessarily in each other's you know, pockets, but they, they do take each other very seriously. Um, and therefore, you get a replication of this notion of what we all should be worried about. And what was put out there was that we all should be worried because it's going to lead to chaos. That is, that the Mubarak regime, quote, may not be perfect. Don't you always hate that phrase? <laughs> oh, it may not be perfect. Right? The Mubarak regime may not be perfect, but it is a hedge against what? Chaos, and out of chaos, who will take advantage? Terrorists, and who are they in? This is now, you're, uh, what you're doing is not saying I know what you think, but rather what is the, the narrative out there. And who is most likely to take advantage in Egypt of chaos? The Muslim Brotherhood, right? And that is the simple narrative. So you have Mubarak um, positioned as the only hedge against the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the presumption is that the Muslim Brotherhood, there's no light between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Al-Qaeda operatives um, in um, the tribal areas of Pakistan, right? So there's just no, rather than any curiosity actually about what's happened within the Muslim Brotherhood in the last six and seven years, for instance, one of the things that we're learning, if you know, we're curious enough, is that in fact the Muslim Brotherhood, as in any organization, in fact has internal dynamics that have become more and more complicated. And you have youth wings of the Muslim Brotherhood that include both women activists, women activists within the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as male activists. And they have really quite a different view of what in fact could be a post-Mubarak um, civil society. Um, so there is, there is debate, contradiction, confusion even, 
um, and some tension within the Muslim Brotherhood, i.e., it's a complicated organization. Right? Um, but it also, there is no evidence that the, quote, Muslim Brotherhood now will become a political party. It is true that it probably will have an edge if the elections are too soon. Um, that is, if, it, there's the, if the elections in Egypt come too soon, the two parties that, will, that, are on the, that have enough organization nationwide so they can actually put up candidates and actually support candidates in a lot of different constituencies will be Mubarak's own party, because it still exists. It hasn't been made illegal, although that's being called upon by the pro-democracy forces and the Muslim Brotherhood. But that isn't by itself chaos. Right? So there is this narrative that you have to support not very um, appealing regimes in the world to withstand the worst thing, and the worst thing is chaos, and that out of chaos some groups are equipped to take full advantage of it, and those are groups you should be most afraid of. Now, the other thing that we've been much too um, uncurious about, and as I say, I like to monitor my, do you ever watch yourself when you go into bookstores, right? those bookstores that still exist? Um, <laughs> yeah. but, that, but that's why I like bookstores. Right? It's not the same as surfing. I love bookstores. Anyway, um, support your independent bookstore. Um, but when you go into bookstores, do you ever, not all the time, because it would take all the fun out of it. But, if, but when you go into bookstores, do you watch the aisles that you never go down? I mean, I just know. I just know which aisles I don't go down, right? You know, I don't know enough about science. You know, do I go immediately to the new hot sellers in the science section? No, 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 you know. <laughs> uh, right? um, so I'm very interested in curiosity and lack of it, and my own lack of it. And one of the things that we've been really uncurious about is, in fact, what has been the structure of the militarized institutions that Mubarak has created and that we have helped fund, we in the United States, in our name, both Democrats and Republicans, have funded. Um, what are those, those regimes? And there's a researcher named Paul Amar um, out at University of California at um, Santa Barbara. And he has done some really um, good descriptions. Descriptions matter descriptions of, in fact, what the Mubarak militarized regime has become. It's very elaborate. Um, in the name of staving off chaos, in the name of promoting this thing that we evidently all feel reassured about, which is called stability. Um, and regime stability, not to be confused with personal lives stability. Um, and it, what is, it is elaborated is a very diverse interlocked form of masculinist um, militarism, but quite um, diverse masculinities. So you have the military in Egypt, the, the most um, powerful political part of the military has been the Air Force. That's where Mubarak comes from. That's um, where the, the head of the intelligence service came from. You don't usually think of Air Forces as being the most powerful politically, um, of um, uh, contemporary militaries. But that means you, have, you, you, know, you have to ask. You have to ask why. And so there's the Air Force, and there's, and the, there's the Army. 
Um, but below that, there is a police. There are there is an elaborated police force, and um, in the police force within the police force, there is the security police, and it's been the security police. By the way, the people in Tahrir Square know all this, and they can pick out because they made distinctions between the military, which is full of conscripts. A lot of those conscripts actually come out of the same communities as the people in the square. So you have to think about both uh, class and generation when you think about those soldiers pulling up and refusing to fire. But the police, and within the police, the security police, and then within the security police, the semi authorized um, what the Egyptians um, refer to as thugs um, um, are um, authorized by the police to um, attack civilians. And they usually are in civilian clothes. Um, but they are, they are economically poorer men. So you have, take it, the Air Force, okay, the army full of conscripts from different classes, um, and in Egypt, unlike a lot of uh, countries, in fact, conscription is uh, adhered to by men of almost all classes, um, mainly because they've kept it short and because you're not likely to go to a war zone. Um, very different than Turkey, say. Um, and then you have the police, then you have the security police, the most feared, and then you have the security police's thugs. So you have this hierarchy of militarized masculinities that are by class, um, all of which are together supposed to do two things. They are supposed to sustain the stability of the regime and cause fear and a sense of insecurity amongst ordinary Egyptians. That is, it, it's, a, it's a form of masculinized, militarized um, uh, security that is is the architecture of it is intended to cause insecurity. I mean, that is why you will see in a lot of the um, uprisings now in Yemen and Syria and Bahrain and um, Egypt and Tunisia and Libya that one of the main um, uh, demands, and the demands get more and more radical as you begin to see the face of the militarized regime um, um, most blatantly, they, the call is for the disbandment of the secret police. That's, uh, oh, that's the top demand almost country by country, as different as these uprisings are. And Yemen is not Libya, and Libya is not Tunisia, and Tunisia is not Egypt, and Egypt is not Bahrain. One has to be curious about all of them. But one of the things that is common amongst all of them is the secret police and the wielding of a certain kind of masculinized um, violence by the secret police that causes people to feel most insecure. Not surprisingly, right? Because there's no transparency, there is no accountability, and there's a high degree of violence. If you probably all listen to Egyptian um, women talk about those who came out and who were active, and of course it's not all, right? It's not all. Um, but those women who did come out um, and came to Tahrir Square, um, and, and their descriptions of what it was like to be there. And what you heard was, it was 
And we, this is really resonates with some of the discussions that have been going on today. It was like family. And what they meant was, and what the, when they were asked, what did you mean? Well, they were trying to explain why there was no sexual harassment in the square. If you saw the photographs that were usually taken from hotels that overlook the square, um, you saw that, in fact, people were very, very close together. They were there overnight. They were not all people who knew each other. They were people where they were next to strangers. And that Egyptian feminists said, one of the striking things was that unlike um, ordinary daily life, um, in fact, they did not experience sexual harassment um, in a public space for simply being a woman who didn't belong in a public space. And when asked why, they said, well, but here we are family. And it was about the level of security gained from common cause. It wasn't that they all knew each other. It wasn't that they'd all reached a common consensus. It wasn't that, um, in fact, they were familial. Um, but rather that, in fact, common cause against the, particularly against the secret police and against the Mubarak regime, which wielded the secret police, gave a sense, a new sense of the way women and men could relate to each other in public space. That's really important here now, in public space. And that, that how long could you sustain that? How long could you sustain the um, sense that there's a new need for mutual respect between women and men if you're going to be able to sustain a cause. Because sexual harassment, and any of you, I'm sure some of you have experienced sexual harassment in some setting. Sexual harassment makes you feel so powerless, it makes you feel so insecure, and at some level it makes the world feel chaotic because you don't have a feeling that you can um, hold anybody accountable. And that's one of the characteristics of having the sense that you're in a chaotic setting. That, in fact, in that setting, it is very hard to account for blame, to hold somebody accountable. Um, it's one of the reasons that feminists um, have been so um, ardent in trying to deny other people's portrayals of certain um, settings being chaotic, because if you say something's chaotic, it is very hard to assign blame and therefore very hard to hold anybody accountable. You know that in um, wars, and many of you have read this literature um, uh, yourselves, um, the, the most common, until the mid-1990s, the most common um, uh, portrayal of wartime um, was that it was chaotic. And, and therefore, you couldn't hold any soldiers from any side accountable for what they did. So you had the, and I usually write it as one word, loot, loot pillage, and rape, right? That's four words, no spaces, right? Pre-web. Um, that is, that loot, pillage, and rape was what happened in wartime because wartime was chaotic. And if it's chaotic, it means nobody can be held accountable, up the chain of command or horizontally. And it's one of the reasons why women um, found wartime 
um, and still find wartime so terrifying, not just because of the actual violence, but because of the denial that there is any causality, that there is any accountability, and that there will be, and that there will be total impunity. That's what fog of war allows you to imagine. Fog of war is just another way of saying chaos in the middle of wartime. One of the enormous breakthroughs in um, challenging that notion of chaos and looking for patterns um, and saying that actually if you have a feminist curiosity, you don't see chaos. You may see confusing patterns, patterns that are hard to see, patterns that take a lot of you together with a lot of different skills to actually chart, but there are patterns. And you find that, that feminists, I think, and most of us, would in fact be very, very reluctant to call any kind of setting after a hurricane, after a tsunami, in the middle of war, um, any setting chaotic. Because as soon as you call it chaotic, you've also said you can't hold anybody accountable. Right? Whereas what we try to do is look for patterns where other people don't see patterns. Because if you can see patterns, you're on the road to finding causality. And if you find causality, you can begin to assign responsibility. And if you can assign responsibility, you can banish impunity. Right? It is one of the most powerful um, consequences, most powerful um, benefits of analysis. Right? I can say that here, right? I mean, we're all, it's very hard to analyze because you have to, out of many, many fragments that seem randomly um, in the space together, that you have to say, if I look hard enough and if I listen to other people hard enough and if I take as knowledgeable people who other people won't listen to, I can see a pattern, and if I can see a pattern, maybe with other people, I can begin to imagine what caused what. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a, um, a gathering at University of, um, at SUNY uh, Buffalo, organized um, um, by a, a wonderful scholar there, and um, Brenda Moore. And Brenda Moore is an African-American who works on uh, African-American women in the US military, but also about war and now about PTSD. Wonderful person, Brenda. So she chose who would come, and she got a lot of people from the VA. It was a very interesting, you know, it's just like you all. You know, who you put us together with is so interesting. And so Brenda had some of the international human rights activists, as well as people from the Buffalo Veterans Administration Hospital in the same room to talk about gender, race, and war. It was, it was a terrific uh, creative um, gathering. And so I was on the stage at one point with, with two other people. Um, and um, Rhonda, Rhonda Copeland. I was Rhonda Copeland and also uh, Lepa um, Milosevic. And she was uh, one of the Milad Genovic, Lepa. And she was from the Women in Black in uh, Belgrade. But here was the moment. So there are 
had been this discussion, and it was kind of round table-y, you know, so you could actually converse. And um, it, was a, it was kind of a, a big hall. And at one point, Rhonda turned to Lepa, and they just looked at each other as if all of us had disappeared, and just looked and said, were you the first one who said systematic wartime rape? And Lepa said, I don't know. I think you first said it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I can't. And it was such a, it was a historic moment because that phrase, systematic, wartime rape, is as far away from the presumption that there's chaos in war as you can get. Because, of course, the radical word there is systematic. That is as deeply radical as an assertion can get. Because it says, systematic says deliberate. Systematic says it was known. Systematic said that it was organizationally uh, transmitted. Systematic said it's not fog of war. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't just guys going off and maybe taking a chicken here and raping a farmer's daughter there. But rather, it was systematic. And these two women who were not and they wouldn't say they were the only ones, but they were the ones in the room who, with other women from Rwanda and from um, Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia, they were the ones who actually, for the first time, not only said systematic wartime rape, they said, you can find evidence of it. And if you can find evidence of it, you can prosecute it. And you all probably know the very first um, person in the history of humankind to ever be prosecuted and convicted for systematic wartime rape was in fact a Rwandan man who was part of the Hutuist party. I try not to say the Hutu party, right? But it was because they were Hutuist, right? And um, against the Tutsis in Rwanda. And who was he? He was a radio producer, a radio producer, because he produced the scripts, the radio scripts that encouraged Hutu men to see Tutsi women as demasculinizing them and as traitors to the Rwandan nation. And he was found guilty in The Hague for systematic wartime rape because he wrote radio scripts, which says systematic means it is not just the guy at the checkpoint, and they should also be prosecuted. It is also who encouraged the guy at the checkpoint to imagine women in this way for the sake of the nation. Um, and that's, a, that's really something to remember. So I think that for me, um, the notion of chaos is a notion to ask us to stop thinking. It's a notion to make us stop thinking in the name of not being afraid. That is, to seek stability um, rather than confusion, to seek stability rather than unpredictable change, to seek stability rather than being curious about new actors with new agendas that maybe aren't our agendas and we don't even know what their agendas are. So I think that the kind of analysis that all of you have been 
uh, so wonderful to share with all the rest of us today is a kind of um, activism that insists on um, accountability, insists on you can find causality. And to search for causality is not to be a conspiracy theorist. It is to pay attention, to insist that, in fact, out of confusion, there are still patterns. And a lot of those patterns are racialized patriarchy. Thank you very much. Yeah, Rebecca. Well, I want to thank you so much for your talk. And I, I hadn't really thought about the topic of our conference to, to chaos until I saw that was your title. This was helpful. Um, but I also, I'm, I'm not sure, so I'm struggling in terms of whether or not this paradigm always makes sense to me. Because there are ways, if I think about something like Hurricane Katrina, yeah. and when we saw chaos, accountability and blame was really key, right? So chaos has been produced because of what the state failed to do. Or, moreover, and I think that this can be the case in case of war as well, I think there's certain kinds of subjects, or citizen subjects, who are all understood as always already chaotic, right? Mm. So the blame and chaos, you know, so if certain kinds of, you know, black men are performing pleasure violent acts, of course they are because they're almost, they're chaotic subjects, right? Um, and so there is a kind of racialized masculinity and understanding chaos as that they're not, it doesn't, they're not outside of a network of blame. They are, of course, that if there's chaos, they must be, <coughs> right? That chaos only happens when these subjects are, chaos happens because these subjects are present. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Yes, no, I think the, the notion of danger, right? Um, and the notion of chaos and the notion of confusion are, are notions to be that are wielded. They are wielded. And that's, I think, one of the themes that's run through a lot of the discussions today. That, and that's why, they, as you've said all along, Rebecca, that's why narrative is so important here. Yes, you can watch in the midst of confusion, in the midst of surprise, in the midst of um, the aftermath of a natural disaster or a violent outbreak of civil or international war. You can watch people try to wield ideas of accountability, blame, and chaos. Um, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why one has to really have a curiosity about what alternative possibilities there are. One never can turn off one's analytical um, thinking in the midst of that. And the fact that so much work has been done I think now particularly by um, uh, feminist scholars and feminist scholars interested in both masculinities and femininities. In fact, there's an immediate, um, you shine an immediate bright light on that kind of narrative and expose it for what it is. Uh, that would have been very hard to do 50 years ago, right? We've really developed a way to watch other people wielding certain kinds of ideas for the sake of creating what they want as a return to their notion of stability, right, in that case. Right, yes, absolutely. Um, it's why blogs are so important. It's why teaching's so important. It's why conversations over dinner is so important, if you ever have a conversation over dinner. Um, it's, it's, why, it's why creating alternative ways of explaining, or I think even alternative ways of describing what you're looking at immediately, 
um, is so important. Give each other language. Give each other way, frames of describing things. It really becomes really crucial as things happen very fast, and you've now got the 24-7 news loop, right, which is just horrible um, because it just embeds that kind of um, oppressive narrative so fast. And so you, the viewer, me, the viewer, the the person with the friend and with the email and with you know a friend having coffee, you've got to immediately come up with an alternative and start giving the alternative. Yeah, yeah, hi, Claire. Yeah, um, I was thinking about your example of the Rwanda and so on. And there's a new book, and the author's name escapes me, but there's a new book about hate speech in this country. Yes. It seems to me that Rwanda, had, had that been stuff going on here, uh, would never have been convicted because in this country you have all this racialized gender discourse that's hate speech and it's protected, right? And, I'm, and in the book he was talking about how the U.S. has now become a sanctuary basically for organizations that want to put out hate speech because yeah. for instance in Europe, um, it's not a slippery slope. You can have hate speech laws and right, people very. can be convicted under this without sacrificing mostly you know, the freedom of speech. But I wonder in this country, this isn't something we need to pay a lot more attention Yeah, and there's a difference between what's going on in the in the Hague, right, and what's going on in particular European countries' laws, right. So in the Hague, I mean, you you have to have evidence. I mean, Milosevic never did reach trial. I mean, he died in um, his very comfortable jail cell in uh, the Hague um, of natural causes, but um, but he never did reach it. But it was going to be a test case, right? And Charles Taylor is now up. Um, uh, uh, being prosecuted. But you do, in The Hague, I mean, it is very tough. And if you watch, there are a number of very um, interesting women who have risen up uh, through various court systems in various countries who are now really devoting themselves to work in the ICC. And of course, the ICC is the International Crimes Court, which a lot of us refer to as the Permanent War Crimes Tribunal, the ICC. And, um, but that depends on, and court-validated um, evidence to show systematic. So systematic, while it is a radical breakthrough to claim that, in fact, you can find systematic wartime rape, doesn't mean that it's easy to prove. And this is why the prosecutor's office in The Hague is really crucial. And you'll see that there's a, there's a whole international, uh, we were talking about transnational feminism this morning, there's a whole international uh, caucus that all they do is monitor uh, what goes on at the ICC. And they have been very, very tough on the prosecutor's office because they monitor what kinds of evidence they collect when. Um, and we all can't be you know, monitoring everything all the time, but it is very important that there is this transnational um, uh, feminist uh, legal huma uh, human rights group um, that, in fact, is monitoring the ICC's prosecutor's office because of the need to show evidence, right? Um, and also, to, also to, to, um, to protect witnesses. I mean, a lot of women um, just, you know, really will not go to The Hague um, to testify because it's much too um, uh, dangerous to then go back home.
Yes, hi. Yes, good, please. Yeah. Um, I hadn't heard of that, and it was like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is a great, you know, move. But then immediately, I was like, well, wait a minute. That also feels a little bit like um, Catherine McKinnon's and Andrea Dworkin's Minneapolis ordinance, in which <laughs> people could, um, pornographers could be held accountable for their violent pornography. Yes, right. For the abuse of women, and you know, I was really much against that. But then I'm for. It's good to be confused sometimes, you know. No, it really is. I mean, if one isn't, one is not on one's toes enough. For instance, so for instance, you, you could go to this case and you can see the full case and how it was prosecuted. It was because he's part of the ruling Hutuist party. And they had his scripts, but they also had the organization. It's about, again, varieties of masculinity that were mobilized in Rwanda in between, um, this is very particular now, between about January 1994 and July 1994. And they had to actually show not just his scripts and not just his hateful, misogynist, um, racialized, because really Hutuists were really using racialized language against Tutsis, um, but rather also how he was embedded in an organization that could carry out the purpose of those radio scripts. And they had to show that as well. Right. Um, and it is, I mean, to show, you know, it's one thing to have hateful speech, and it's quite another, in this case, in a very formal, very rigorous, the ICC and the, before that the Rwandan tribunal, which was actually in Arusha, was in uh, Tanzania, um, and then the Bosnian um, and former Yugoslavian um, uh, trials were all in The Hague. Um, so this will be in the Arusha um, uh, Tribunal, um, overseen by The Hague. Um, but they really, you have to show evidence, right? Very, and it's, so yeah, track down, the, track down the, the, the case. You can find it all. Uh, Human Rights Watch might be a good place to start. Yeah, hi. So I'm fascinated by this idea of the systematic, and I, I certainly recognize that in some cases you would be able to identify someone who would actually produce mm. scripts. But I wonder if mm. you also want to insist in this model on the systematic without being able to identify a source. That is, it, we, I think we would also want to be able, it would be useful to be able to talk about the systematic Absolutely. without that and be able to also prove that something was systematic in the absence of a designer, in the absence of an architect, that yeah. is things that become so structurally pervasive that they are systematic. And you can, um, and I suppose then the proof would be things like the pervasiveness. Yeah. So that if you find the pattern that is without the source, do we want to see those as different or are they the same? I, I don't have an answer to it. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I When I got off on the, um, the war crimes tribunals, I don't want you to think that the radicalness of exposing the systematic quality of abuse, in fact, rests so solely on its legalistic uh, uses, but rather it's really intellectual, political uses of being able to expose and look for 
and you won't always find it. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, the way patriarchy works, and this is why patriarchy is so sustainable, because it doesn't always have to be systematic in the sense of highly deliberative, highly explicit, right? Um, but where you can um, find systematic um, forms of uh, racialized or um, uh, gender um, uh, abuse, um, in fact, one should look for it and expose it, even if, in fact, there isn't some legal um, instrument through which to prosecute it. I mean, it really, the that's where the political takes over. I mean, that's why the importance of showing that FEMA was systematically right, uh, made incapable of being uh, responsive um, to uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Now, probably a lot of us would like to have seen certain characters up on trial for that, but it, what was really important was the political mobilization around the exposure of the systematic um, refusal to take seriously the, what the consequences would be for the people of New Orleans and the Mississippi coast by that level of neglect. That is systematic ne neglect. And that really created a politics. And I think the politics actually um, changed a lot of, of uh, consciousness in this country. Um, and in fact, it's now going on amongst the Japanese. Right? We shouldn't think that, you know, we, well, we aren't. We are usually way, way, way behind. We all know that, right? Way behind, analytically. And the, if you look at the discussions amongst the Japanese now about the Tokyo Electric Company, right? And the relationship between the Tokyo Electric Company and for years the um, ruling LDP in Japan, the ruling party, it's now out of power, but it, it may gain in the summer's elections. Um, in fact, you will see Japanese really talking about, did the um, reactor uh, crisis, was it preventable? Um, for instance, one of the things that has come out um, from Japanese analysts is, well, who are these workers who are now being heroicized, right? These workers who are risking their lives and their health, at least, um, to try and bring the reactors under control. Well, it turns out that the Tokyo um, uh, Electric Company, um, which is the main um, corporation that is uh, responsible for the reactors, they deliberately have hired part-time um, male workers who in the Japanese economy, which has been in trouble now for at least 12 years, there are a lot of men that are seriously unemployed who would take that kind of job. This is before the tsunami. And there's a lot of talk now amongst Japanese. Why is it that this kind of dangerous, very responsible work was being assigned to low-paid, part-time um, uh, men um, who were desperate for work? So there's a lot of talk in Japan now about holding um, both the government, um, particularly certain ministries, and uh, the Tokyo Electric responsible because they're doing a search for systematic responsibility. And there may not be, there may not be trials, right? But that doesn't mean there's not a shift in political consciousness and a mobilization behind it. Finding, some, finding systematic cause can be very mobilizing. First of all, finding it can be mobilizing, and having found it can be mobilizing, right? Yeah, hi. of finding systematic 
um, cause. I'm curious, and this is probably, pardon me, it's like a first-year PhD student question, maybe. That now you now you've made me nervous. <laughs> now you've really made me nervous. Yeah, every time you know somebody prefaces their question, oh, this probably isn't really a good question. You think, oh, oh this is going to be the best question of the <laughs> session. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm, I'm curious as to the locale of finding clues around yes. the systematic nature of chaos or systematic sort of oppression. And oftentimes, the locale is the very oppressed or, or, the, or the very very communities who are either mobilizing or are subject to this forms of chaos. So I'm just curious as to like, you know, how does projects that work to unleash systematic chaos sort of, you know, privilege or sort of work with um, with folks who are sort of bearing the brunt to so-called say, and sort of and the relationship between sort of academic knowledge production and the day-to-day -day knowledge production that's sustaining life in the face of death. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I think that feminists in many countries, or people who've become feminist in their curiosity in many countries, have discovered is that it is the people on the margins um, who, who seem conventionally to have no capital K knowledge, right? Who in fact hold the knowledge, small k, real k, the knowledge that will allow you to see whether something is or isn't systematic. This is certainly true in a lot of ecological disasters. Um, it has been um, um, Wangari Maathai, for instance, in Kenya, actually working with the poorest of the poor in the rural areas to really discover what, in fact, are the causes for deforestation. Um, uh, a friend of mine was at the World Water Forum, um, which was held in Istanbul two years ago. And there's now a whole coalition of feminist water, I call them the water girls, the feminist water um, activists um, who have now begun together to try and bring ideas or insist on that ideas about gender be brought into the very otherwise technical, ungendered discussion of water crises. And one of the things that they have found, and they've found it because most of them do research with the most marginal people who are the most subject to either the lack of water or the destruction of um, drinkable water. Um, and what they found is that by, if you listen to women who have to carry water over long distances further and further away from their own home usage, um, that in fact one of the things you find is that the further and further away water is, this is from listening to women who allegedly are not water experts, but the women who carry it, because in many rural societies women are the water carriers, right? They are the water gatherers. And what they found was by taking seriously these women who nobody else at the World Water Forum ever thought had expertise, what they discovered was not only was water further and further away from the source, and that meant women were spending longer and longer times, but it meant you had to have somebody else go with you because you could only go once a day, right? It was so far away. And if gathering water is conventionally imagined in a community as women's work, then who in the family does a woman ask to go along and help her carry the second and third buckets of water? 
daughters. Dot, dot, dot. That is one of the reasons that women, that girls are dropping out of school in a lot of water-deprived countries. That is, you put together women's, girls' ability to go to school with water um, deprivation. And nobody thought to even put those things together until you had these feminist um, analysts looking at not only what was happening to water, or the consequences of what was happening to water. So I think it absolutely is right that you have to really change your idea of expertise, which we know is loaded, right? Your idea of knowledge, my idea of knowledge, and a curiosity about who is your informant so that you can find what is systematic. It's very hard to find what is systematic just staying at the le level of elite policymakers, right? Um, so therefore, it, it means you have to do research amongst people who will give you no prestige by saying you're doing research amongst them. <laughs> right? And Wendy and I know that in political science, you gain all your prestige by rubbing up, uh, you know, and claiming that you are doing studies of people who have prestige, and then maybe you'll have a little yourself, right? But this kind of search for systematic uh, causality means that you have to gain confidence in your knowledge and not search for prestige by talking to people who actually have the knowledge. Thank you all very much.